0: In Wisconsin, the Supreme Court turns blue, as they rule on an 1849 law that currently sets the standard of care for pregnancy here in 2023. Scientists warn that Tornado Alley is expanding. Those twisters aren't just in Kansas anymore. And there's a flag on the play. NFL Senator Jason Kelsey gets called for excessive snoring during his wife's labor.
1: We're here to get you through it all. Our goal is to deliver a better future, one healthy baby at a time. We're the Green Docs, 2 OBGYNs talking about the environment and how it affects women's health and birth outcomes. I'm Bruce Picard, I'm an OB in San Diego, I'm a tree hugger and a kelp lover, and I'm living the all-electric life powered by renewable energy in San Diego.
0: And I'm Nate DiNicola, an OB-GYN in Newport Beach and the environmental health expert for our national and international societies, as well as the very lucky groom for a wedding in New Orleans next week, where the city has very graciously agreed to host French Quarter Fest to go along with our nuptials. Today in our episode, Mother Earth Needs an OBGYN, we're talking about the origins of Earth Day and how we currently could use a reboot of that green wave that drove so many successful Legislative and social changes to help us get through that history and the future. We're going to be joined by Dr. Jeanie Connery. She is the current president of the International OBGYN Society. She's the former president of the United States OBGYN Society. She is an avid birdwatcher, and she is the reigning environmental health champion for women's health. So, we'll look forward to that conversation with her uh, in just a few minutes. Uh. So, Bruce, what, what did you make of that, that first headline about the Wisconsin election?
1: Well, first of all, I got to say that you kind of threw me. I thought you'd begin with the biggest news of the week, which was uh, National Burrito Day was yesterday. But I want to talk about Wisconsin. You know, that's equally interesting. And apparently really important. I mean, National Burrito Day goes without saying. Well, I think every day is... Is national Burrito Day, but that's just me. I live in San Diego. We have a lot of great Mexican food here. But let's talk about Wisconsin, because this was kind of surprising. Uh, this apparently, I mean, this is a state Supreme Court election. These are not normally national news. But this particular one is because Wisconsin is a key battleground state, as we call them politically, and Wisconsin is grappling with some really, really difficult problems right now, as our guest from last... Our last episode, Dr. Kristen Lee told us they are really, the uh, current state of legislation in that country, excuse me, in that uh, state is currently tying the hands of OBGYNs as they try to take care of pregnant women having emergencies related to pregnancy. It certainly wasn't uh, an intentional thing, but that's effectively what's happened. And one of the things we tried to communicate in our last episode is just how quickly. Uh, A pregnant woman can get into trouble with a miscarriage or some kind of spontaneous abortion uh, where it can become life-threatening in a hurry. So the kinds of rules that are in place and legislation at the state level uh, has a lot to do with allowing doctors to take care of patients and save lives. And this particular vote was seen as as a very important one. And uh, the way it went looks like it's a very pro-patient result, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, they uh, elected a, a Democrat-supported Supreme Court justice for the state uh, Supreme Court, which will be a crucial tilt in the balance of power as they consider this current standard of care law, which uh, Dr. Kristen Lyrely last week reminded us comes from 1849. I mean, think about how much has changed in healthcare since 1849. That's the current standard of care, and so this this new uh, court will be. We'll be assessing whether that still makes sense or whether there's new uh, kind of measures to put in place. I think pretty clearly there's been some updates. And what was really, uh, you know, at the center of of this election in Wisconsin, both at the Supreme Court level and even in in what would be considered generally smaller races, like like the mayor's race in Queen, Green Bay, is women's health. Uh, and I think that's why this is taking on a national flavor, is that this is seen as perhaps a sign of things to come, that running on you know, protecting access to essential women's health care seems to be a winning message. Uh, it was one that Dr. Lyerly, uh shared on, on our episode last week. And since this uh, story came out, she has been uh, doing kind of a media tour. Uh, she just spoke with Rolling Stone about this. Uh, she was on NPR uh, yesterday, so we'll include that in the show links. So you can listen to her uh, on All Things Considered. Uh, I understand going to be on NBC coming up soon. So this really is getting a lot of attention, uh, like you said, more than typically a state election would.
1: Yes. And so terrific that we had Kristen here because she is one of the better communicators, certainly from a medical perspective, of the importance of this election, allowing uh, women's health doctors to do what they want to do, which is simply to take care of patients and get the best available, best possible outcomes for some uh, pretty risky situations
0: yeah so on our action item to to vote for leaders who you know are, are facile and uh, up to date on these topics do, do you think do you think we uh, can declare victory we're we're one for one should we should we should we retire have we done enough
1: no i think it's probably going to take another three or four episodes and then we'll have the world all straightened out but we're off to a good start so right. uh well, talk we'll, to me about we'll keep going then yeah good thanks <laughs> Uh, talk to me about the uh, twisters and, and uh, not, just, not just Kansas anymore.
0: Yeah. If you were to rewrite Wizard of Oz, Dorothy might need to be in like Louisiana. Uh, the, the crux of the story was not that the hurricane uh, alley, tornado, sorry, not hurricane, tornado, not that tornado alley is moving, but that it's widening. So historically, this is in the Great Plains. And now the climate scientists are saying it shifted east uh, to a wider catchment and it's also shifting to areas that are more densely populated. So cities like Atlanta, Nashville, Charlotte, in the past, these tornadoes may have been hitting areas that just weren't populated. So we didn't know about them. They didn't cause as much harm. But now they're, they're more frequent. They're in a wider area. And they're actually, more people are in harm's way uh, because of the warming, the warming climate.
1: And apparently the science is still in evolution. We don't really know enough to say that the overall number of tornadoes is increasing. But uh, just from the news stories, it certainly seems like, uh, the, as you're saying, the, the regions that are potentially at risk from tornadoes are uh, expanding. There was even a report of an EF1 tornado in Downey, which is in Southern California, just outside of Los Angeles, which is just absolutely shocking to think of. And that wasn't the only one that showed up in an odd place. Uh, but uh, it, we don't want to say definitively, because we can't, that tornadoes are increasing, but their behavior seems to be changing, and it, and it does appear that their intensity may be changing as well. So this is a story in, still in evolution, uh, but it bears watching.
0: Yeah. It took me a little bit back to residency, uh, in, in new Orleans. Uh, you know, we mentioned going back there for the wedding. One of the reasons that I have such affection for new Orleans was my time there, uh, as a resident and it came right on the heels of hurricane Katrina. Uh, we learned so many lessons from uh, our experience with that, where, you know, the, the people who just happened to be on call for any given weekend were the ones who became the disaster response team, uh, you know, as it turned out, one of the doctors had like turned their ankle recently, so it would not be the one who should be running up and down stairs with with uh, patient transport. Uh, but this this was kind of part of what got me into environmental issues, at least in as much as many of them are natural disasters. And the hospitals with labor and delivery units already have so much uncertainty for just the timing of when babies will be born to then throw uh, things like tornadoes that, that really come on quickly and don't have much advanced warning. And this is gonna be a, a big challenge for the, uh, the hospitals in these areas that haven't historically had, had to worry about tornadoes. So speaking of labor and delivery units with unexpected things, uh, last mm-hmm. week we talked about dolphins as doulas and this week we've got an NFL center. What did you think of that one, Bruce? Uh, Jason <laughs> Kelsey in his, in his wife's TikTok video.
1: Well, there's no obstetrician that goes through a few years of practice that can't tell plenty of stories about men behaving badly in the delivery room, and it's usually not overt. It's not like they, they, uh, yeah, I don't know, cause harm or get in the way or something like that. But sometimes our gender can be a wee bit insensitive to uh, what's actually going on, um, and maybe doesn't quite have the the right. Uh, priorities in mind. This particular story was a TikTok video that 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 uh, this football player's wife did pretty much tongue-in-cheek, giving him credit for taking care of himself so well during her labor. Now, granted, it was her third baby, and it wasn't probably quite the level of concern and intensity that normally goes along with it, but hey, this woman has gone through nine months carrying this baby. I can pretty much guarantee you it was not a comfortable experience for some or all of that time. And she finally gets to deliver the baby. And does she really want to watch her husband, uh, you know, eat a cheeseburger when she's been told she can't really eat anything for a while? Does she want to smell that cheeseburger and just not be able to get anywhere near it? Uh, in addition to that, I think he brought his own fan to the delivery room to make sure he was comfortable. And while she was awake and going through. Uh, pains that that men can only imagine and fear at a distance. Uh, he was comfortably taking a nap uh, during all these times, so it's not a really a very good look for him.
0: Yeah, I mean, he had just played in a Super Bowl, and uh, his his wife was the one going through uh, all the pain. Really, though, uh, this this was a story about about the the Kelsey family uh, who had players on both teams in the Super Bowl. And it kind of became an OB story even before this delivery because uh, Jason Kelsey's wife was 38 weeks pregnant at the Super Bowl. And so she brought her OB as like her date to the game in case delivery happened like at halftime, uh, which, by the way, I would say is a trend that I think I think the Green Dogs can get behind. If people want to start having OBs on call and uh, bring us to events like the Super Bowl and the Oscars, I think we could find a few people who would be up for it.
1: Yeah, we might even broaden that list to include things like vacations to beautiful islands, uh, yachts, uh, private planes. We like to make ourselves available wherever we can be useful if the food is good and the uh, surroundings are beautiful.
0: Did you ever get to attend any events uh, as, as an OB on call?
1: No, I never was that lucky.
0: Yeah, the closest I got was, was ringside at a... Uh, charity event that was featured centered around a, a boxing match uh and basically they did not have their doctor because this was in washington dc and there was like some kind of big motorcade so the doctor's gonna be hours away and they started tapping people on the shoulders asking if anybody could be the doctor ringside and uh i i think they had no idea that i was an OBGYN gyn who would be pinchly caring for these these boxers and their events but it was enough to get me ringside for a while and i think i got some auction bucks from it
1: <laughs> and thankfully, nobody really needed any major care that you might not have been trained to provide.
0: Well, the, the, the Master of Ceremonies told me, uh, don't tell them to push.
1: <laughs> this month, the 22nd of April, will mark the 53rd time we've celebrated Earth Day in this country. And a, a lot of people either weren't born at the time or just have sort of forgotten, but it is an interesting story how this all began. So, so again, the very first Earth Day was in 1970. But the decade leading up to that day was unusual in the history of this country and really a, the history of the world. First of all, just for background, I was a kid growing up in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley, and I didn't pay terribly much attention to any of this because i was you know 10 12 years old but we all knew there was a cold war going on whatever that was with our arch nemesis the soviet union and essentially a cold war was was a war of words and threats uh, without a lot of guns being fired and certainly no big skirmishes happening but the concern was very significant because these Two countries, ours and the Soviet Union, had lots and lots of nuclear weapons, enough to blow up the world several times over. And so this was smoldering throughout the 1960s. The Vietnam War, which had started in the mid-50s, escalated steadily throughout the 1960s. And more and more uh, people got caught up in it and sent over to uh, to Southeast Asia, many of whom did not come back. Uh, The Cold War itself came to a bit of a head in 1962 in October with the Cuban Missile Crisis. And those of us that were alive then remember things like uh, I was talking to a friend of mine I was in grammar school with the other day, and we were doing drop drills where bells would go off and the teacher would say drop, and we all had to crawl under our desks because that was somehow going to protect us if suddenly Russia had launched nuclear weapons at us. Uh, People talked about bomb shelters. I remember my parents' anxiety. Even though I didn't really understand what was going on, I'd never seen them like that before. Uh, At the same time, on another track, a very important book was released. Rachel Carson wrote a book called Silent Spring that came out also in 1962. And it was about the indiscriminate use of pesticides, DDT and others, uh, that were poisoning birds and fish and Uh, And humans. And it was really a call. I think in many ways it launched the organic movement in this country. Also, occurring simultaneously was what was called the space race, which essentially was the Soviet Union and the U.S. trying to be the first to take a dominant role in space exploration. And the kind of unspoken threat was that if you controlled space, you would also have a big amount of control over what happened on Earth. So it had a very distinct sort of military flavor to it. Uh, Russia got on the, on the court first with the launch of Sputnik, the very first Earth satellite in 1957, but we raced to catch up. And something positive came of that uh, that really pertains to this story, and that was during Uh, Actually, on Christmas Eve, uh, December 24th, 1968, one of the astronauts on Apollo 8 took a photograph looking back towards Earth, and that photograph, known as Earthrise, which many of you have probably seen, uh, really launched a new perspective for so many people on Earth that we began to see, for the very first time, our planet from a distance, which I think gave us this realization that our planet was finite and also fragile, so it really, really changed. I think what a lot of people thought about our our Earth and our place on it. And actually, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist, said in in response to that photograph, he said, "We went to the moon and we discovered Earth," and in many ways, that's true. And go ahead, Nate. <laughs> Do you remember seeing that photo
0: that was so, yeah, we like to cite our sources and Neil deGrasse Tyson has uh, a few lectures on this and he says it was the, uh, the cover photo of time magazine, 1969, that Earthrise over the lunar landscape. And that kind of changed everything, you know, because at the, at the moment that picture was taken, there was only one human who had ever been born or was ever alive who wasn't in that photo. And that was the photographer. Uh, because everybody else was captured in in the first ever you know full picture of Earth.
1: That's right. So and you were in that picture, Bruce. I was. I was smiling and waving, but I don't really think we saw it. Uh, anyway, the year after 1969 was, of course, when Neil Armstrong became the first person to set foot on the moon. So all of these events, uh, from the Cold War to the space race, to Rachel Carson awakening us to the risks of of indiscriminate use of chemicals, uh, I believe created uh, an awareness across society of our shared vulnerability. It really kind of woke us up uh, that what happened in the world and how we took care of our world really mattered to us as individuals. And then a year later, Some well-meaning folks thought they'd launch a day of student protest about risks to our world, to our environment, to nature, and they called it Earth Day. And they scheduled it for a Wednesday because that's when a lot of students could get some time off in the afternoon and college students were sort of midway between spring break and finals. I don't think they anticipated anywhere near the response, but literally 20 million people on that day, took to the streets and showed up for protests all over the country. And at the time, that was one out of every 10 Americans. It was the largest single-day protest in American history, and it holds that record still. So it was really a, uh, quite a, an amazing uh, outpouring of support and concern on that very first Earth Day in 1970. And, Nate, I think you have a, a bit of a list of the results of things that happened after that day.
0: I do. I'm curious, Bruce, do you remember that first Earth Day? Like, do you remember it being an event that you would have attended or that was, like, happening in the news?
1: I remember hearing about it on the news. I was 15 years old. Uh, I didn't go to a protest, but I certainly heard about it. And I heard about it for a long time afterwards. And that image, that Earthrise image, appeared on all kinds of things for years. Yeah, I kind of
0: wonder if that's still how a lot of people interact with Earth Day. Uh, that it's kind of like they hear about it once it's happened or it's halfway over, you know, maybe there's some reference to it, but it's not something that's like marked on the calendar upcoming. Uh, so we hope to provide a little more context for that and maybe people will uh, you know, have it circled on the calendar now. Uh, but what, what was really maybe more uh, long lasting than, than just the Earth Day celebration was the whole like sequelae, a whole list of uh, new laws and organizations that came out after that that image of Earthrise over the lunar landscape came out uh, because it was really you know, a whole new kind of understanding of how we interact with the natural world. And 1969 was that uh, Time Magazine image. And then just right after that, this whole series of things came out. So 1970 was uh, Earth Day, but also a Comprehensive Clean Air Act. 1970 was also when the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, was formed. Uh, 1971 was the formation of Doctors Without Borders. And as Neil deGrasse Tyson, again, we're, we're definitely citing our sources here. Uh, he he has spelled a lot of this. Uh, you know that that phrase doesn't really come to mind unless you see the Earth without borders drawn the way that maps do. It was it was a whole new kind of perspective. Uh, we had DDT banned in 1972, Clean Water Act in 1972, uh, switched the catalytic converter uh, and unleaded gas in 1973, and so over this you know say four to five year period following. That trip to the moon, where we discovered Earth, there was just uh, you know a, a whole wave, <laughs> a green wave of new legislation that uh, it really served us so well in the decades since then. Uh, you know, we we have a lot of environmental exposures we're going to be talking about, but uh, there, there's no doubt that things like unleaded gas made a difference very quickly. You know, the amount of lead you see in populations just plummeted after we switched from unleaded gas. Uh, and I don't know. About, uh,
1: I, I was just going to say, I don't know that it was simply that 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 uh, those things came into being because of that photograph. But I think it was, you know, so often we see politicians not so much leading as, as sort of sticking their finger up in the air and noticing which direction the wind is blowing. And clearly that 20 million people co- showing up on the streets uh, greatly exceeding expectations uh, and obviously very concerned about uh, environmental exposures uh, prompted these politicians to to realize we got to do something or maybe that's a good way to get reelected is if we actually do something that will help people. So, uh, so many wonderful things came as a result, I think, of that very first celebration or protest.
0: Yeah. And and for, you know, 30 to 40 years, it, it was it was probably a pretty good safeguard for some of these things. You know, the Clean Water Act made a difference. Uh, the Clean Air Act did reduce air pollution. Uh, in our research, we talk a lot about air pollution as an exposure that threatens pregnancy. Uh, but really what we're talking about is an increased understanding of what air pollution can do to a pregnancy, not necessarily that air pollution is on the rise or on the decrease, because since the Clean Air Act, it has been decreasing. Uh, and and even to your point, Bruce, that it's not just one thing, it's kind of a, a wave of actions, there was an even uh, deeper story leading up to that, that decade of the 1970s, that it kind of set the stage for understanding the environmental connections to uh, health and specifically pregnancy health. Uh, now, whenever we kind of encounter somebody who's not, uh, say, in medicine, who is pregnant or a family member is pregnant, and they come ask the OB, like family friend, uh, what to do now that they're pregnant, the first thing I usually hear is a question about fish they say like you know my pregnant my wife's pregnant i can't eat fish right there's something about fish what what did i what what's about fish uh is that your experience bruce that like fish is like the first thing <laughs>
1: that gets attention yeah it's one of those things you know in addition to you know stopping smoking maybe or uh, uh there are a number of questions but they certainly always come back to the fish and cheese cheese is a
0: popular one they we asked about pretty quickly like yeah I, uh, uh so when, when I was working with the National OBGYN Societies on our documents about how to write about environmental exposures for pregnancy health, it, it was a surprise to a lot of the people in the group, you know, the experts in the field, why fish was something that we talked about. You know, we all knew what to say, like avoid certain types of fish because they have certain contaminants, but where that came from, what the history of it was, was really uh, not known even among the experts. And it all goes back to Minamata Bay, Japan in the 1950s, uh, because for decades prior to that, there had been industrial waste spillage into Minamata Bay. And in the mid-1950s, they started to see the adverse health effects in their children. Uh, there was, was one key event. A young girl in 1954 presented the hospital with these like seizures and uh, neurological uh, conditions. They, they did all the workup, and they were really confused by it. And finally, they figured out that it was mercury poisoning, that she had huge, high amounts of mercury. And it's like, where, where did this five-year-old girl encounter mercury? You know, it's not a common thing that would be in, in the household or, or in food or drink. And then it wasn't just that one girl. There was another one and another one. And suddenly, Japan was dealing with all these children uh, who were having really unexplained seizures. They were seeing lower rates of uh, pregnancy. They are seeing higher rates of pregnancy loss. And they started researching and they figured out that it was coming from the seafood, that all that industrial waste spillage from the decades prior was, was accumulating up the food chain and the kids, well, the adults too, who are eating this food would have gotten the same exposure, but adults are a little more resilient sometimes to these. It's really pregnancy and kids that are more vulnerable. And this is how they figured out uh, that mercury poisoning is very uh, damaging and deadly to, to kids into pregnancy. And they described Minamata disease. They uh, created a whole kind of uh, medical society-led movement to not only counsel patients to avoid these fish for the time being, but to understand the role of the environment in public hazard. Uh, the Japanese term was Kogai. And this became like a whole movement uh, from there that, that was uh, part of the momentum leading up to, to Earth Day. Uh, So it took about 10 years from the first patient be identified to uh, the new was called the the basic law for environmental pollution control that Japan uh, implemented and had international ramifications. But but that was the first story. It was about it was about seafood and mercury that was in the food supply and how it affected pregnancy and kids. Uh, And that's why to this day, one of the first things we we think about with pregnancy is be careful of fish. Yeah, it, it might surprise some people to learn that the concern with fish was toxins, not just uh, it being raw. Because a lot of people think you don't eat fish because it's sushi and it's raw and it might have something in it. Uh, this was not a law directed towards sushi. Uh, and by the way, for what it's worth, uh, sushi technically would not be harmful to the pregnancy uh, if it's, if it's you know, fresh and good sushi, if, it, if, it's, if it's bad sushi. Uh, it could have a flukeworm, a hookworm infection, and that's what the pregnant woman could get. That by itself is not actually going to harm the pregnancy. The treatment for it is mabendazole, and that's, that's teratogenic. That causes birth defects. So if you get this, you know, bad sushi infection, like a hookworm, we can't treat it for X number of months. And yeah, you know, that would be a problem. Uh, but really, you know, the, the first concern with fish was the toxins that were sitting in it from the public health, you know, hazards from, from decades of pollution. So, uh. Up next, we have the perfect person to talk to about this. She uh, works at the national and international level on both women's health and the linkage to the environment. Uh, We are very delighted to be joined by Dr. Jeannie Connery, who is the current president of the International Women's Society. Uh, It's called the FIGO is the abbreviation, but it's the the French acronym, uh, Fédération Internationale of Canelacchio et Obstétrico. It's probably a ha-ha-ha that comes behind that. <laughs> uh, and she is the former president of the uh, United States version of that, <laughs> the American <laughs> College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Uh, and we're so delighted to uh, bring her in from the green womb, where she's been waiting, and have her join the Green Docs.
1: And we'll be right back with Dr. Connery in just a moment.
0: So without further ado... Jeannie, welcome to the Green Docks.
2: Thank you very much. do you Do you remember your first Earth Day? Oh my gosh, listening to you too. That was memory lane for me. Um, my dad worked for Lockheed. We had all of the space shuttle, space not shuttle, space ships up in our garage. And I was at a Catholic girls school. And we had our own on-site demonstration. And I can I was, I was can still remember the song that we wrote for Earth Day, the very first Earth Day. <laughs> Should I sing it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> we could do a it's chorus probably. Pollution,
2: <laughs> pollution <laughs> you are my lung cancer, and you've got me dying. And it's, <laughs> the words go to some song from the 1970s, but I don't know what it was.
1: And did you sing it at, at the event? Were, were there a bunch of people singing this?
2: We, you know, we were a good Catholic girls' school, so our demonstration was on site. But we had all sorts of things that day, and it was—I've never forgotten it. I mean, it—I it, can't say it. I, it changed my life, but it opened my eyes, and I can say, looking back, um, I had a trajectory from then. So,
1: well, we're definitely going to cover that. that trajectory. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, so what,
0: what, what would, what would that grade school girl think if she saw you now? as president of these big societies and, you know, environment is one of your issues that you've championed.
2: You know, I was going to go into education. And so I think at every stage in my life, it's been some element of educating, whether it's one-on-one with my patients, whether it's educating member societies about the environment or trying to educate our legislators about um, how their decisions impact health. Um, it's always been education. Just a different facet here and there.
1: Yeah. So was it well, Earth Day that brought you to environmental concerns, or was this something that showed up later in the arc of your career? Which, by the oh. way, we're incredibly lucky to have you here because you were a giant in the world of OBGYN and have been for 30 years, and you aren't slowing down. If, if our audience is wondering why your voice sounds a little raspy, it's because you just came back from your international travels, which it seems like you are Uh, busy with all the time, but not as a typical tourist most of the time, but as somebody who's really working on elevating the standards of women's health care and pregnancy protection throughout the world. So uh, there you go. Yeah, I
2: did have a grueling set of trips. I think I went from France to Egypt, Morocco, Ethiopia, Kenya, and London all in like two and a half weeks. And then got my laryngitis and haven't been able to speak. And speaking at all, though, so it was a little bit wild and everybody was wonderful. But it's been the most incredible gift I've been given to meet people around the world who are as passionate about what we're doing. And I always say with OBGYNs, you need to be so involved and so Um, aware of so many different areas, whether it's reproductive health, it's environmental health, it's cancer, it's um, maternal mortality. We have to be gifted enough to talk about all of those. Um, And I'm fortunate enough really to have cared about environmental issues from, I would say from college on. I started bird watching when I was Um, a sophomore in college, one of my professors said, oh, here, borrow some binoculars and go out to the park. And I I did, (laughs) and then started doing environmental research um, up at Eagle Lake, up in Sierra Nevadas, um, doing water sampling up in the mountains, camping out um, up in the Sierras, up in hiking in Mount Lassen and Mount Shasta. So from that point on, I can say I had a, a strong trajectory.
0: Have you, have you had a, a favorite recent bird sighting lately?
2: Oh, my gosh. You know, this is bad. My husband is a bird watcher, and he hasn't been on the latest trips with me. So I'm taking pictures saying, what am I seeing, and asking him to identify for me. So um, I think that's, no. you know, it's in my backyard. I'm home um, now for a couple of weeks, and... The hummingbirds are migrating through, and the bluebirds are here so seeing the the california you know the the western bluebirds has probably been the highlight of the the week for me
0: well we're I'm sure you're enjoying some time back in back at home uh, for yeah. for the listeners, you should definitely be following uh Dr. Connery on Instagram and uh, the other socials it, it's a it's a far more interesting uh feed than where in the world is Carmen San Diego. You get the international travel, you get the bird pictures, and you get a little uh, education along the way. Uh, What's the next trip up for you? Jeannie, where where are you headed next?
2: Um, I'm heading back to Paris, and then probably the big one is going to be Cape Town, um, South Africa, because there is a huge, important conference on global maternal morbidity and mortality, and it will just be a, a... a really fabulous meeting, bringing some of the um, great minds, but the passionate people in each country saying what they've done to really improve um, outcomes or what are the problems ahead of us. So I think that is that is definitely the biggest one. The biggest one for the year, of course, if I put in a plug, is Paris, October 2023, when Figo will have our World Congress in Paris, and we will talk about all elements of global women's health. Nate, I know you're going to be there, and it'll be exciting to have you. We are going to have a, a one of the keynote speakers. We'll be talking about environment and the European Union, so um, and some of the leadership that they've done in the research. But we're going to kick off the, the Congress with Dr. Dennis McQuege, the only no who's won a Nobel Prize for the most incredible work he's done Um on violence against women and women being used as weapons in war. So it really is a very broad conference. I know we're focusing on Environment and Earth Day, but those are all elements of a healthy Earth.
1: And one of the things that we certainly learned yeah. and share in this show is that everything is connected to everything. We were just talking in our last episode about the connection of maternal mortality, deaths during pregnancy and shortly afterwards, with population levels, and in particular in a lot of countries around the world, uh, the importance of educating girls and providing access to family planning for women as a way to keep population levels uh, at a reasonable number. Now, another thing that yeah. we did with our- yeah. With Good. our last episode, as we talked, both of us uh, just came up about how we got involved around environmental issues and climate change in particular. Was there a, a moment when uh, the light bulb came on for you around the risks of climate change, whether it just meant to you personally or to women's health?
2: Uh, if I look at climate change, I would say that one was this last decade because I had put it in the concept of the environment. And so I think my focus early on, for sure in 2006 in there, was looking at endocrine disruptors and environmental toxics that impact health. And so when people would say, what about climate change? I said, that's part of it. You know, we're looking at... um, all these different environmental factors. I'm not pulling out climate change separate from the endocrine disruptors, separate from the water pollution and all of these things. They're all different. You know, what do we say? It's the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we consume, and the products we use. That's it. And you've got to look at those four broad areas and be aware of the impact on our health.
0: And those have been the themes for the International Ob uh, Earth Day Twitter campaign the last couple of years. Yeah. You know, we'll have yeah. one day cl- clean air, clean water, clean food. Uh, I think natural disasters also. Uh, so, a lot of your work has been with the medical societies, you know, both national and now international. How how did this come attention to the societies? You know, like like how what 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 gets their attention when it comes to these kind of maybe broad topics?
2: You know, I take it back to, you asked about aha moments. It was probably 2006 when somebody in the California State Legislature called us at ACOG, the American College of OBGYN, and said, what is ACOG's policy about lead and lipstick? I went, oh, shoot. <laughs> okay, lipstick's good. It's <laughs> fine. And I went, no, no. Lead is bad. It's got to be bad. And I thought, oh my gosh, we have no policy. Here we are providing guidance for women about everything that we can think of in their lives and something as straightforward as, is the lead in my lipstick bad? And we realized we had never thought about it and it pointed to the crux of the problem. We assume everything is safe. Of course it's safe. It was sold to us. It must Mm -hmm. be safe. Somebody knows what they're doing. It must be fine. And that was Truly my aha moment, because I realized there was no somebody making sure it was fine. There was no someone making sure any of it is safe. And it was looking at the products and all the potential um, chemical impacts on our health. That really was it. And and by 2010, we had met with National ACOG and said, can we create a document that provides guidance for OBGYNs across the United States and we partnered with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, first time the two societies have put together a joint publication, and released it in 2013. And it was the first major statement by an OBGYN society. I will say the Endocrine Society did a fabulous job, I think back in 2009, and they've always been great leaders on this. But it was really important for OBGYNs to speak out, and we did that in 2013. And, and, and that powerful. was really,
0: yeah, I mean that you, you really began the whole wave, uh, right? I, I think yeah. it was, you know, from 2013, there was the the United States national document. Then a few years later, we had the international version of that document. Uh, a couple years after that, 2018 or so, we had the uh, societies, all the kind of national medical societies getting together to form a consortium around climate and health. Yes. We had the, um, the, the group of environmental scientists, toxicologists, patient advocates, and medical societies forming this it was called Project Tender, not Tinder, Tender, uh, for targeting environmental, environmental risk. Uh, it, all of that really began with that 2013 document. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you think that, that it made a difference that, that you and uh, Linda Judice were the presidents at the time of both those societies?
2: Back in, in 2009, 2010, Linda and I decided that we needed to do this. And then, when both of us were elected um, presidents of our societies, we said we must get it published while we're both presidents. And it overlapped at that time. And it was an intentional, purposeful project. And it did. We heard from so many. Um, researchers saying when a society comes up with a statement like that, it boosts the element of our research. It gives credibility to what we're doing. I think it was really, really important. And then you're right, with FIGO in 2015 putting it at the global level, saying we need to have all of our societies aware of this. It was just, it's taking that trajectory. And then Bruce, you probably don't remember, but I remember speaking with you about climate change and listening to you and you were so passionate and you you were a climate champion. And I thought, you know what, that's what we haven't done I need to look at what Al Gore has done because Al Gore, I don't know him, Al and me, you know, Al Gore has been talking about this for so long, but he changed the world. He made a difference. And I really believe it was his curriculum, his climate champions, and that ownership that so many people had that we've said one of our next major projects in FIGO has to be environmental champions. And we have, um, the only group that's pulled it off, and all power to them, is the Philippine OBGYN Society has created an entire curriculum. They've now put it on as one of the important things. They always have disasters because of you know climate change, the typhoons and everything they have. They've got an entire curriculum and are getting credentials in environmental health. So I would love to take that curriculum globally and get people as environmental champions. But that was your conversation with me many years ago.
1: I remember that very distinctly, and that's how I got to meet Nate as well, was I got connected to the two of you by cold calling the the immediate past president of the American College of OBGYN. But I I ran across a quote recently from you that I really love, and you said, it is not enough to advise a patient about what is right. It is as important to change what is wrong, which just seems like a call for advocacy from, from health professionals, from doctors. How How is that process going with your work now? How do you inspire the medical professionals that you work with to, to get outside of their practices and work more in advocacy?
2: Well, let me give an example. And I, in terms of advocacy, that's how Nate and I met. Same kind of conversation. He called one of the past presidents of ACOG, <laughs> passionate about what he needed to do. And they said, oh, talk with Jeannie. And... That's been a decade now, and we have partnered in so many so many exciting ways, but let me give you an example to answer that. I gave a talk at the Asia Oceania Federation of OBGYN um, a year ago, um, I think it was April, and I, it was about climate change and environmental toxics and why we needed to really take up a, a take this up as an issue. AoFAG has now put that as one of their top priorities. Again, this is Asia Oceania. They are worried about rising sea levels. They are worried about lead and, you know, the, the, the nutrients that they're eating. Um, and it was so fun because the president of their society and the um, trustee from that region, the Figo trustee from that region, and... One of the leaders on their, their groups gave the talk at the next meeting I went to, and it was phenomenal. I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, you guys are doing this perfectly. It was just so exciting that you can go and suggest something be taken off and then have them implement it and say, we're going to put this as a priority. So I, it, that's where we have to, we amplify messages and then hope somebody carries that message on for us.
0: And and for the patients, there, there's a role for them too, right? Uh, oh, I mean, when, yes. I mean, I imagine that call that what came to ACOG asking about the policy of lead and lipstick probably began with a patient who, you know, saw her, her daughter or she herself was using something and said, oh my God, there's lead in this. I better ask my OBGYN who had no idea what to do because there was no <laughs> statement on it. Uh, I feel like when I was doing the most recent uh, national updates to the document, the way I could get traction was when it was things patients were asking about. So they asked about hair dye. We could talk about hair dye because people were fielding those questions. Yeah. Uh, do you, do you find that to be the case that the patients are driving a lot of this?
2: I always think the patients know more than our doctors. They've done more reading physicians. You know, we get very, um, we get tunnel vision. We have to worry about, You know, OB, we're going to worry about labor and delivery. We're going to worry about cancer. So we get very siloed in what we do. And the environment is outdoor biology. It's not something that most doctors think they need to worry about. It's outdoor biology. And what I like to do is show at the very start of my talk, I show indoor biology and I'll show a fetus and say, we know that blood sugar impacts fetal development. We know that it's a potential teratogen. We know these medications are potential teratogens. So why are you so good at worrying about a fetus and you just don't look at the broader um, context of exposures for a woman? And I think it's personalizing it that way get, that gets doctors to think a little bit more broadly.
1: You know, it was interesting. I was listening to another podcast just a couple of days ago. It was an interview with a author, and economist, and brilliant researcher by the name of Paul Hawken, who has a, a long and interesting history uh, on, in the environmental space, and also as a very successful businessman. But he was saying we're currently all being homeschooled by Mother Nature. I think it is becoming progressively hard to ignore the connection to our outdoor biology, to the things that are happening yep. around us all the time. Uh, but anyway, your work, it just continues to expand. You seem like you aren't slowing down and you're, if anything, uh, almost getting more enthusiastic. Is it because you're seeing real evidence of, of, uh, progress, things that you're excited about?
2: Oh, I don't know. My, my family would say hashtag not retired is what they keep saying about <laughs> me. Um, Uh, I think it's a belief that we've got to be the voice for change. I can say that's one of the reasons I ran for president of FIGO, um, that I felt so passionately about the environment that I could bring that to a global scale. So I know that's one of the reasons. And then, you know, Nate and I have been working on um, environmental toxics and measurements, and that came about probably... Six or seven years ago, I was at a, a meeting, and somebody was talking about um, children's health. You know, we always talk about the first thousand days, and I said, "You know, it's this focus on the thousand days missed." The 365 before that 1,000 days and maybe like the 600 days that we should have been worrying about before that 1,000 days. So we've got it all wrong. It's not the first 1,000 days. We're looking at a couple 1,000 days that we really should be addressing, and we don't. We kind of think the the baby's out of that, that womb, and now we're going to work on, on what needs to change. And we've missed the entire pregnancy. We missed the pre Pregnancy time period, when women should be taking folic acid, making sure their lifestyles are healthy, and I think um, it's being able to be that voice is what keeps me going.
0: And that was one of the first connections that you draw when when I reached out to ACOG, the National Society, and said, "We've got to do something about the environment. What are we doing?" And uh, you had said, "Well, you know, the pediatricians just came to us recently and said." You, you guys are you're behind like by the time the kids get to us. It's too late, which is sure. mind blowing because the, the, the kids, you know, newborn or they're you know, a few years old. How can that be too late for health? But uh, if the exposure happened during pregnancy, then it, then it was too late. And that was yeah. really the beginning of one of these powerful alliances. Uh, I, I'm curious, how much of this are you able to bring home? You know, like you've got you've got a daughter in fashion and design who has a phenomenal Instagram, by the way, that should be followed also by the listeners. Uh, you've got grandchildren now. How much How like do they come and ask you about, you know, are these products safe? Do you, do you check their lipstick for lead? Uh, how, how much hits home for you?
2: Um, a lot. My daughter is very, very aware and very cautious and has all of her friends interested and she's probably the person that I bounce ideas off because of her generation and what resonates well you know what what matters to you and she's she's pretty with it I, you know yeah, she is in fashion but she's also very good at branding and marketing and understands that whole area and probably gives me more ideas on how I should approach things differently or better. Yeah, I should. You when I'm retired from FIGO, then I can do more with that.
0: Yeah, hashtag not retired. Yeah. (laughs) So what what are you um what what do you see as the biggest challenge ahead? What's we know there's a few conferences coming up, and uh, we have this this international world congress that only happens once every three years. So this this is a big deal that that you're leading this in Paris and bringing in so many experts and Nobel Prize winners. Uh, but what do you, what do you see as kind of that being a launching point for? Like, what's what's the next big challenge that 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 we've got to solve?
2: Well, I think um, probably the work that you and I are doing that um, I called it several years ago the environmental um, version of twenty three and Me, um, and this happened right before COVID because I in January of that year I'd gone to a conference and met a researcher for John, from Johns Hopkins, um, and we talked about being able to measure toxics in, in our urine or in our bloodstream and how easy it would be that we could tell somebody what their exposures are. And then we, we couldn't tell somebody actually the source. But if you saw um, that you had, I, I had done it, I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was, oh gosh, Natural Resource Defense Counselor, one of those asked me to wear a band for a week. And my pesticide level came out high and i was shocked because you know we grow our own food a lot of it we don't use pesticides but i'm in california central valley the the pesticide capital of california and i was shocked that my pesticide level was was pretty high in just wearing wrist wristband for a week so I said, you know, it would be interesting to have something, whether it's just a, a little a band, a urine drop or something, that could give people some feedback. And then, Nate, you and I in our, our Figo group would come up with what are the sources. For me, pesticides. Well, I could look around here, say where I am in Central California, and those are some sources. But if my PFOA level is high, the PFAS, the forever chemicals, that finally the EPA is going to do something about. Mm -hmm. And we've been saying for years we shouldn't have those, we shouldn't have no exposure. I tried finding out from our local water source several years ago, do they measure, do they have any information? No. So I think it's all those barriers that have been put up that we know there are problems. It would be very interesting to find personal levels and be able to tell people what some sources are for, or the ex- potential exposures are.
1: And we're in such an interesting position right now technologically to start to measure these things with wearables that can actually determine people's true exposure to these things instead of just using distant monitors. Uh, we think a lot about that in terms of air pollution exposure and heat exposure and things <laughs> like that. So, so there are uh, increasing opportunities as much as the risks are escalating. We're having increasing opportunities to do really good science around these and inform policies. What are the best ways to avoid these exposures and to treat them? So
2: Yeah. Well, and you know, I'm in the, the fire zone. You guys are too now, but I'm definitely in the fire zone of Northern California. And I remember in the 70s when I was doing my research up in the Sierras, I'd come down into the valley into this level of pollution and then watching that clean up by the end of the 70s and the 80s, it just our air cleaned. But with these last years and all the smoke, it's been dreadful seeing just the impact of smoke on our health.
0: Yeah. And, you know, what, what's what's amazing about our ability to test for these chemicals now is that we're, we're learning that we have so many of them. You know, it can almost become overwhelming. Like I've got these zillions of chemicals I never even heard of and I can't pronounce them. Uh, and on the work that, that we're doing to look at, you know, both the prenatal supplements, but also various ways of testing things, um, there, there are many times where the levels are, are maybe higher than you might expect, but, but manageable. And then sometimes where they're just so high, uh, that something needs to be done. And so, you know, we test for so many other things we test for, you you mentioned diabetes and glucose. We test so many panels of labs. It only makes sense to start testing for the ones that are, that are really out of control, Uh, and, and then, you know, knowing enough to act to reduce some of these wherever we can. And, uh, that's where it's been. So, I I feel like so motivating in the recent work where we can give some counseling, some actual counseling advice for, uh, avoiding the, 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 the PFAS and for avoiding the endocrine disruptors with really simple things at home, you know, things that are involving, uh, food and diet and water and personal care products. Do you find people respond well to counseling about actionable items they can do at home?
2: For the most part, yeah. I mean, I think the we came up with a list a, a long time ago, just some things that are pretty doable. You know, heat and glass, not plastic. It just makes sense. If you're going to put something in a microwave, don't ever put it in plastic. Just put it in glass. That's an easy one. We were one time at a, a meeting and asked what was the hardest thing to give up and I said, Oh, my nonstick pans, you know, my my cooking pans, the Teflon plans went out the, the went into the trash. That was a hard one. Um I think cooking is can be difficult. So changing how we cook um, can be challenging for people. So in as many ways as we can make it easy, but that's putting the burden on us. And I think what where we feel strongly is the burden needs to go back on our governments, on those who are providing the food to make it safe. Or, you know, you look at all the the train derailments and people being told, oh, don't worry about what just dumped in your water supply. Wait a minute. Don't worry because we've done no research on that chemical to say it shows harm. Well, that's not the same as saying it's harmless. It's just we didn't do any research on it. Okay, those are two big differences and that's what happens all the time with exposures
0: yeah that's exactly right we, we talked about that on one of the early episodes uh, there was a story of a woman who yes. was around that east palestine and uh went to get tested for dioxin the the chemical and agent orange uh and couldn't get tested at the lab uh yeah. even with a physician's prescription so yeah it's it, it's a it's a tough thing because uh pregnant women already have so many demands on them you know don't don't do any of the fun stuff, don't eat this, don't drink this, avoid the fish that we've talked about, uh, it really is, is not fair to say then uh, control the air you breathe or have yeah. any control over the temperature outside. So we, 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 yeah, it's, it's a tough balance between giving some kind of individual agency to do something on your own, but really looking for a system and higher solutions that kind of can all be done at, at high levels with people who tend to be elected to things.
2: And, you know, that's such a great description. I remember when the 2013 article came out and Linda Judice and I said, how do we approach this? Because we actually held some briefings at in D.C. Uh, um, about it. And we said, you want awareness without being alarmist. And it's, it's, it's that fine balance. How do you improve people's awareness without scaring them that all these, you know, you look around. But I will say the... Um, Researcher who's going to give one of the talks at the FIgo meeting has done research in the European Union on environmental um, disrupting chemicals. I can't remember which chemicals she was measuring, but she measured in the follicle around the, the you know, the follicle around the egg, the follicular fluid was sampling it, and the endocrine disruptor that she was measuring was a higher concentration in the follicle than is legally permitted. In their water supplies, so we know that our we're getting bathed in it in different ways. We don't know the mechanism for some of these things, but we know we've seen um, individuals in Taiwan where they're they're um, you know harvesting tea, and the the fertility issues that people work in the f- fields have because the endocrine disruptors are impacting their um, ovulation. So we know these chemicals are having an effect. But that woman working out in the fields has no control over it. So the government has to be able to regulate the pesticides that she's being exposed to to save her life and that of her family.
1: And we started this episode uh, talking about a a story about an election in Wisconsin and, and the idea that government at the very least should be helping to protect us, not leading us into more harm. And so that's exactly the kind of work that we are hoping to encourage and that you are such an incredible example of uh your tireless advocacy i'm kind of surprised your voice ever comes back You're you're (laughs) speaking (laughs) around the world all the time and uh you just you set an example for all of us in the specialty that is uh, nearly impossible to match and it's just such an incredible privilege to be able to have you on here and to represent you is there anything that you would uh, like to share with our audience uh, just in terms of a, a closing thought or or something that, that maybe they can take home with them and make them feel better and, and uh, empower them?
2: You know, just that with you two Green Docs um, carrying this forward, to me, is where we need to go. You know, having Nate will become the chair of our Figo committee on climate change and toxic environmental exposures, um, in just a few months when the October meeting had, um, happens. So I feel like I'm passing that torch on and it's exciting to see you both doing what you're doing. So to me, it's a a great time and I can go be grandma.
0: (laughs) Well, it's, it's a nice view standing on the shoulders of giants. I can say that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, to Bruce's point, uh, that that Wisconsin story wrapped up very quickly. I mean, you know, we, we had just had an interview with Kristen Lyerly about the importance of of women's health in her work, and now the election has gone in a way that looks like they put some leaders in who get it. So yeah. we're going to try and continue the Green Docs track record. Uh, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna put the call out to action here to our listeners in a minute. Uh, but uh, Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's it's always even even after so many conversations, I always learn something new whenever I hear from you. Uh, so it's been such I'll a pleasure. See
2: you again for you. <laughs>
0: and we're gonna get we're gonna get AI to to find that song you talked about, and we'll make it part of the Paris opening ceremonies. Oh God!
2: <laughs> and Dr. Lyerly's um, her session with you guys was fabulous. So getting advocates for women's reproductive health and rights. Globally is really where we need to go. So that's, you know, I said we've got all of these things. Then we're, we're Figo's working to not have any silos and really to have all of these um, enmeshed because reproductive health and rights goes strongly with maternal health outcomes. Goes strongly with environmental issues. They're all and they're all interconnected. So you guys are pulling all of these links together for us.
1: Yes, and being thoroughly entertained and inspired along the way. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So where do we find ourselves? Uh, Dr. Conry, our guest, talked about the broader context of exposures, or as she put it, our outdoor biology. And it's crucial importance, not just during pregnancy, but clearly throughout life for everyone. Well, at this time, those exposures include, in addition to a climate crisis with multiple health threats, the specter of pesticides, severe water contamination affecting literally hundreds of thousands of Americans, toxin-loaded trains falling off the tracks, and tornadoes showing up where they've never been seen before. And there are others. Nature is kind of a mess right now. But the story of the first Earth Day and what followed shows us that we can fix this. We have made rapid progress before. And not unlike the decade leading up to the first Earth Day, the almost daily drumbeat of self-inflicted disasters on the news and in our social feeds is being met by polls that show increasing levels of concern for Americans across the country. More people are getting involved, putting their phones down for a moment, showing up to things. This is certainly true in the healthcare sector, where, Nate, you and I are seeing green docks sprouting up everywhere, but it's across society generally, people getting engaged with these problems. And remember, at the time of the first Earth Day, we had collectively become aware of the reality that our home planet was both finite and fragile, which catalyzed massive change. Now, this new, new perspective... We can all see that the instability of nature and our individual health aren't separate concerns. Increasingly, the state of our environment impacts whether we can even achieve, much less maintain, our own well being. So, how do we all become part of this urgent response that's needed now? Nate, what can people do to protect their families, themselves, and their community?
0: Well, what we can do is bring this new perspective. Right to home, so the new perspective that was granted by that picture of Earthrise, taken from uh, the the Earth at a distance, can really uh, be seen as much more intimate to our health. Uh, if there was one image you might take away from this episode, it would be uh, of a pregnant woman with the the Earthrise image painted on her pregnant belly, because that really is how intimate the tie is between. Everything that we consume, what we eat, what we drink, the air we breathe, and what it means for our health and, and for pregnancy, what it means for a whole lifetime of health for uh, the growing the growing baby and and um, the child's life so we really want to talk about how that new perspective might change what you do um, and, and in so many ways the environment drives the engine we've talked about macro environments that you see uh, from from big, you know, 30,000 foot views. Uh, and there's micro environments like where you work and eat and play. And to kind of combine these two, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to use the lens of plastics uh, and specifically microplastics, because we began this episode uh, in part by talking about the legacy of contaminated water, getting into the Seafood supply and that seafood getting consumed by children and causing mercury poisoning. In a way, plastic is kind of the new lead with this regard. Uh, the the plastic waste that we produce gets into the waters and the oceans, and the fish eat that, and then it gets into our food supply again. So such that uh, you know we're 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 seeing babies born with microplastics in their system and microplastics in the placenta. So. Uh, of, of all the kind of things you can do to consider, uh, your, your footprint on, on the theme of earth day, I'm going to encourage you to focus on plastic and not to eliminate it completely. That's impossible. Uh, and I, and I hear the people who kind of, uh, have some pushback against say plastic straws because you've got a plastic. Okay. So fine. You got a paper straw in a plastic cup with a plastic lid and a plastic bag. You know, we understand there's a lot of plastic out there, and straws are not really where I'm going to direct people, but, but we're talking about pregnancy health and, and women's health. So for pregnant women, uh, they're encouraged to drink a lot of water. Uh, it's a big part of what uh, keeps them out of the hospital. And that water can be consumed in containers that are not plastic. There's a lot of, a lot of other options. We heard uh, Jeannie Connery talk about the importance of not heating things in plastic because those resins soak in more when they're heated and these have endocrine disrupting effects uh, that that can hurt the developing fetus uh, more, than, uh, more than we realize. Uh, believe it or not, there's even more reason not to eat fast food. There's plastic uh, in the lining that a lot of those hamburgers and nuggets are wrapped in and then they get heated up and the resins get soaked in there. And so even one more reason to kind of avoid fast food and that you're getting some endocrine disrupting plastics uh, in, within all the other stuff that, that you're eating. Uh, so th- that's going to kind of be my recommendation for a takeaway, is to, is to th- consider the macro impact of those microplastics and uh, as much as you can, just sort that out of your life.
1: And I take your point and this is doable and it's something uh that's uh it's a pervasive exposure that a lot of us don't think about very much i know for me it's been a a process eliminating plastic in my life although i have to admit i every time i hear that word i go back to the graduate with dustin hoffman and i hear that word and smile a little bit but then i realize as you say it's kind of like the new lead now so as times change meanings change too but thinking about actions that we can take in honor of Earth Day. Uh, I spoke at a virtual symposium at the Center for Environment and Health at Mass General Hospital last week, and I heard a really good talk from a woman researcher in uh, the climate world. And essentially, at the end, what she did was challenge the attendees to go one level up in terms of their involvement. Most of us do something. You know, you bring your own bag to Whole Foods or whatever, whatever kind of uh, – thing you're into you might be a you know really good at recycling or there's just something you have an electric car now that you're really excited about but in honor of earth day or earth month or earth year uh challenge yourself ask yourself to you know what 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 would this look like if i did this at a higher level and as congressman john lewis said get into some good trouble maybe and see if there's a way that you can actually up your impact because there is no question that there's so many things we need to address, but we need to address them all and quickly.
0: Well, higher level, definitely a theme for this episode, uh, including the view of Earth from a, from a higher level. So uh, you mentioned that that talk that, that you were really uh, excited about delivering. Uh, what else do you have coming up?
1: I'm going to CleanMed in uh Pittsburgh next month, where we're going to hear from experts on decarbonizing the healthcare sector. Uh, Not something I've been much involved with, but I have a great deal of respect for the people that weighed into how hospitals function and, uh, you know, operating rooms and the anesthetic gases they use and things like that. Uh, And I'm also going to be given a presentation for a financial services group on their Earth Day celebration and I'm looking forward to presenting information they may not be aware of that talks more about what climate's impacts are, where they are in in Indiana. So uh, that story is different depending upon where you are in the country, but there's certainly plenty of things to talk about. That's uh, at the top of my list anyway. What about you?
0: Yeah, well, you're you're teaching us the other meaning of green docs with your accounting uh Ventures. Up next, I've got a trip to Baltimore in May. That's where the national OBGYN meeting is going to be convening. And uh, I'll be meeting with some of the the leadership there to talk about uh, environmental connections with pregnancy health. And uh, again, Jeannie Connery mentioned that our international OBGYN society now has a specific committee dedicated to climate change and toxic exposures. We affectionately call it the C2T2. That committee is hosting a, a series of webinars on Earth Day. So uh, be sure to check out the show links for for that. And please join us for our next episode. It'll be our uh, special Mother's Day episode of Green Docs. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Uh, And you can also join our website, uh, GreenDocsPodcast.com, where you can send some comments and questions that we'll be addressing later. Uh, So please be sure to uh, follow and share.
1: This episode of Green Docs was written by Bruce Bacara and Nate DiNicola and produced by John Beethan of Imagine Podcasting. Again, check out our website, GreenDocsPodcast.com. Send us comments, questions, suggestions, Uh, We're looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks for joining us. Happy Earth Day.